Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And if you listened to last Wednesday's episode, you heard a classic episode of Tech Stuff about electronic voting machines, the episode published back in October 2016. And Mr. Ben Bolin of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and Ridiculous History fame joined me for that discussion. We are going to continue that discussion today. This is part two of that episode. And uh, we are going to continue to dive down the tricky and potentially disastrous pathway to creating voting systems. The idea that if you create a voting system that is perceived to be unfair, then you're really undermining the entire foundation of democracy. And I know that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Because if we lose faith in the system, if we do not believe the system works, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Of course, we have to make sure that the system does work. If the system's not working, then we absolutely have to fix it. So it is a very tricky subject. Ben and I will go into much more detail. Uh, I, I hope you guys are doing well. I know this is still a very trying and challenging time for so many reasons. I want you guys to know I believe in you. I think that you guys are awesome. Uh, you all have proven that over and over. So let's sit back and listen to this classic episode about the scary world of EVMs part two. At the close of our conversation, we cast our votes and we decided democratically yes. that this would be better as a two-part series than a single epic length episode that would have stretched the the patience of the most uh, most forgiving of listeners. <laughs> now we have broken it up into two parts. So what you are about to hear is the conclusion of that two-part. Also, I should add that when we get to the end and we sign off... Uh, we did not know at that point that it was going to be a two-parter. So we actually have already recorded the end of the episode that I'm recording the beginning of now. And yes, time travel does confuse me. So let's just segue in to part two of how electronic voting machines are going to ruin everything. Remember we mentioned that in 2002, that's when they started to appear on the scene. That's when Georgia – actually, they started to appear before 2002, but 2002 is when Georgia became the first state to have just the electronic voting machines out there in the polling uh, places. Um, many of those machines have not been updated since, and mm-hmm. almost all of them are running on a version of Windows XP, which hasn't been updated since April 2014. So that means – any security vulnerability that has been d- discovered since 2014 is still there. Mm-hmm. Chances are some of the ones before 2014 are still there because I bet a lot of those machines have never received a patch, right? They're just right. these big – they're these machines that are uh, being overseen by the government and uh, you know, it, it, chances are a lot of them are unpatched. So there's a lot of potential for people to tamper. And not only that, you know, I mentioned the idea of either – unconsciously or purposefully inserting a bias, that's a real concern too. Sure. Right? Because private companies are the ones designing these machines. Mm -hmm. They do so with using proprietary software that is not uh, visible to the general public. Nor is it, uh, what's what's the word, nor is it in any way 
compelled to answer to the general public. Right. Like the public doesn't have a the, the quote unquote capital P public doesn't have a vote uh, regarding which companies run these machines. Right. You look at this and uh, you see that uh, everyone says, well, we can't reveal our code because if we did, uh, then our competitors would see how we do things and then we can't compete in the marketplace anymore. Right. And so uh, meanwhile, you've got security experts saying this should all be open source. And the reason it should be open source is so that the community at large would have the opportunity to look at the code and see if there are any vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And if so – Make sure that those get patched before you get to a point where the code is being put into uh, play in an actual election so that those vulnerabilities can't be exploited. Mm-hmm. Because if something's proprietary and someone figures out an exploit to that software, then it's all behind closed doors. There's no way to address it, and you end up with a huge problem. Uh, but But beyond that, you have companies that could insert a bias into the programming itself. And this kind of stems from um, an interesting story that happened in the early 2000s. Do tell. So 2003, uh, Walden Wally Odell, and I'm not making up the nickname Wally. That is what he would go by. Uh, Wally Odell uh, was at that time the CEO and chairman of Diebold. Now, mm-hmm. Diebold's best known for making ATMs. Right. But uh, Diebold. They also make car batteries. Yeah. Well, they also, for a while, made electronic voting machines. Uh, there was a subsidiary called Diebold Election Systems, which the company has since divested itself of that particular property. Uh, but Diebold Election Systems made a lot of electronic voting machines. And Diebold, by the way, is um, headquartered in Ohio, a very important state in uh, national elections here in the United States. Yeah, it's a swing state. That's what we call it. Yep. Swing, so meaning, swing states for, you know, there's probably, I've got some listeners who are outside the U.S. You may have heard the term swing state and you don't know what that means. So the way elections work in the U.S., uh, you know, you've got your major two-party system. Mm-hmm. And 95% of the time, that's the those are the only parties that really make an impact. So you've got your Republicans and your Democrats. And you've got a lot of states that, that, lean toward one or the other, and it is almost unheard of for them to support a candidate of the opposite party. Sure. Like uh, for one example uh, of this would be a state like Utah would be legendarily not voting uh, Democratic. Yeah. And a state like Vermont would be legendarily not voting Republican. Right. So it would be an incredibly strange set of circumstances to see one of these states uh, support a candidate of the opposite party that it tends to support. So for the most part, we just assume those electors in the electoral college will support the traditional candidates uh, that those states would support. But there's some states that could go either way. They could swing toward the Republican side one election and swing toward the Democratic side in another. Florida. Florida. Ohio. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Uh, so the the electors in these states, uh, it may be that they are the the ones that are chosen are the ones for Republican uh, in one uh, one election or Democrat in another election. So Ohio is one of those states, which means it's incredibly valuable, right? It means it's a battleground state. You want to win that state because uh, you know you've got your your foundation that's almost guaranteed. Uh-huh. Nothing's ever a guarantee, but it's almost a guarantee. And uh, uh, so you need to really concentrate on the states where you have the potential to flip it so yeah. that it's on your side and not your opponent's mm-hmm. side. 
Well, Ohio is one of those states. Diebold has its headquarters in Ohio, and Wally, the CEO of Diebold at that time, wrote a letter uh, where he was uh, committing himself to, quote, helping Ohio deliver its electoral votes to the president, end quote, president being George W. Bush at that time. So oh, not a good look. Not yeah, a good look. Yeah, Jonathan. The CEO of a company that makes voting machines saying yeah. he's committed to delivering Ohio's electoral votes to the president. Now, the company was quick to say, hey, he's not talking about using our products to push the election. He's this talking way. as like a personal fundraiser donor. Right. He's talking about campaigning. and But a lot of people said, hey, isn't there a conflict of interests if you've got the head of a company making the voting technology that people depend upon also openly supporting a specific candidate in the race? It's very it's very close to uh, a member of the Supreme Court saying like I will do anything I can to get you elected George and then and then saying oh fiddle dee dee we don't have time to yeah. recount the votes from Florida well, we look there's some things that are more important than making absolutely certain that the people's vote was uh, reflected in the actual election like Reasons. Um, <laughs> I just I like saying fiddle dee dee, but I don't think the Supremes say that. No, but you're, you raise no the Supremes point. don't. They sing. <laughs> right. I refer to them as, as the Supremes. Supremes. I, yeah, I like that. I, John Roberts I, so, and the Supremes. So many wonderful visions going through my head right now. Oh man, uh, you should have seen the comedy show we did with that with that sketch. Oh wow, it went I over surprisingly well. But anyway, that that point aside, like what you're saying is really important here because. Let's assume if we were to take Wally at his word. Yes. Then even with that, a PR firm would say the optics look bad. Yeah. So when you, when you make those sorts of statements, you have to be very conscious, conscious of what is going to happen. This is, uh, this is an environment wherein, uh, let's see, what year was this? 2003, right? Yeah, 2003 was when you wrote the letter. And so 2004 was the election. So people are already very sore off of the 2000 mm-hmm. election. And we have seen an accelerating distrust in the American political system sure. for some time, you know? Yeah. And this, this and, thing is just excel- making it, exacerbating it. Right. That's and, the word. And I, I think in one of the wired pieces I read, it might have even been the one you just referenced, uh, there, the author of the piece made a really great point, which was that you don't need any case of tampering or bias. It doesn't have to exist. But the possibility of it ex- of it existing is enough to cause turmoil, right? You can cause real-world turmoil right. just from the possibility of this being a thing without any evidence of it actually happening. So you don't need to have evidence of someone purposefully trying to rig the system in order for people to not trust the system. Mm-hmm. As long as it's clear that it's a possibility... That's enough to have people say, like, well, how can I trust anything? How can right. I trust the results? Because, you know, you're telling me there's no evidence, but how do I know there's no evidence? Fool, I know it's possible. Fool me twice. You, you, you can't get fooled again. Yeah. Thanks. It's a, 
It's a, it's a great quote that I'm not going to make any fun of. All right. So then uh, we've got the fear of hackers. We've got the fear of bias from the standpoint of the manufacturers of the voting machines themselves. Mm. And then we got the fear of hackers, third parties that want to rig the results or uh, prevent people from voting. Right. Completely possible. Absolutely. Completely possible. Because, again, these systems are not terribly secure. Um, now, you've got. A couple of different arguments about this, right? Yeah. You've got people who support DREs and they say, listen, hacking, trying to trying to uh, affect politics on a national level here in the United States is a fool's errand mm-hmm. for multiple re- reasons. And a big one is that we have so many different types of electronic voting machines out there. Yeah. And they are proprietary. They don't all work on the same software. So you can't develop a universal approach to affect all the machines. Now, if the entire United States, if w- all of us use the exact same kind of machine across all the states and mm-hmm. the territories, then that could be a potential vulnerability uh, if, in fact, they were also connected to, like, the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. You would have an amazing target because you think, well, if I develop the right kind of software, I can affect every single vote, cast in the United States. But that's not the reality of our situation. We have all these different types of machines, some of which are connected to the Internet, some of which aren't. You have uh, running on different types of software, so you cannot create that one-size-fits-all approach to affecting all of them. That being said, you could still affect specific ones, like you could target specific regions that you think are particularly important uh-huh. and, and try to affect uh, voting that way. Sure. But in fact, critics say that because the return on investment is so high, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly tempting target for hackers. Like you might say, yeah, it's a lot of work, but look at the outcome. The outcome is the effect of a national election. It's it's harder to have a bigger set of stakes than that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you could say like, yeah, it's hard, but the the goal is so huge that it justifies the hard work on the part of the hackers. Right. Ben and I have a little bit more to say about the scary world of EVMs, but first, let's take a quick break. Here's the thing. Yeah. You don't have to be like the Liam Neeson taken level of a hacker. You don't have to be anonymous or, a, you know, some faction sec yeah. operation. You don't have to have a particular set of skills. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that was not that was not very bad. I, was, I had a little thing stuck in my teeth. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you you don't have to be some amazing savant hacker uh, with these crazy credentials and qualifications you don't even have to be states a state-sponsored hacker hacker like a you know from the chinese military or right something. no you can uh if you're talking about systems running on windows xp that haven't been patched in two years at the very at at, at best they haven't been patched in two years at worst it's been much longer than that uh and if there is a way to access the machines either over the internet or through physical contact with the machines, mm-hmm. it's entirely possible for someone to use code developed by somebody else and infect that machine. Oh, so I the, know what you're going to say, man. Yeah. So the diminutive term for these people, uh, and my friend Shannon hates this term, um, would be script kitties. Mm-hmm. Script kitties meaning a type of person who uh, – 
profits off of malicious code, but they didn't develop the code themselves. They went to some place yeah. that where that code is available. They either purchase the code or they download the code for free, depending upon the place that they're going to. Mm-hmm. And then they deploy that code. And in some cases, the code is pretty much automated. It does everything for you. You just have to be the one. You just have to be able to deploy it somehow. Right. right? Yeah. And uh, you don't have to have any knowledge of how it works. You, all you need to do is just make sure the code gets on the machine that you want it to get on. Just point it in the right direction. Yeah. So imagine that you've got a thumb drive with this code, and it's in a file so it will auto-execute once it connects to a USB drive on a machine. Mm-hmm. You come out to a, a voting machine that happens to have a USB drive, which would be a terrible idea. Um, I'm not even suggesting that there are electronic voting machines that have USB ports. I don't know if there are. If there are, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) You plug in the thumb drive, automatically executes, runs the malicious code. That has become part of the voting machine's programming from that point forward, and you can no longer trust the results it generates. Uh, That is entirely possible, assuming that, again, you have some way of of injecting the code into the machine. Yeah. So if you do have that possibility, that would be bad. Um, <laughs> and also, you don't even necessarily have to set out to change votes, right? Like, right. That, that's the way we mostly think of it. Like, again, mm-hmm. going back to the Reagan-Carter example, we would think, oh, well, they programmed it so that it took that Reagan vote and flipped it to Carter. You could also just try and overload the voting machine so that no votes could be cast on it at all. You like could take DDoS. it down. Yeah. You're just taking down the machine. You just want it to, to crash and be unrecoverable. And then uh, you, you really impact that the ability for people to cast votes. And if you do that in enough places that have very particular uh, uh, political leanings, you can affect the outcome of an election simply because the people who wanted to vote were physically unable to do so. And unless you make special allowances for that, yeah, then those those votes will never happen. Uh, so that's kind of ugly too. Um, and also, finally, uh, turns out a lot of the results are unencrypted, which is crazy to me. Which, to, yeah, is bizarre. Yeah, so that you're, you're, doesn't make any sense. Votes recorded in plain text in a file where you're not, you haven't even encrypted the results. So there's no protection there. Like, if someone does get access to that data somehow, no matter, you know, whatever methodology you might need, yeah, they can make changes. And, you know, this is not just theoretical. In 2015, the state of Virginia decertified hundreds of win-vote EVMs because they were insecure. And according to the officials, you could change the votes in these win-vote machines undetected if you were anywhere within a half mile radius of the machine, even if you weren't like a knowledgeable hacker. Well, you don't want to have to get out of the car. No. You know what I mean? It's like Pokemon Go, but for election results. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. Now, I should also add that according to the Wired article where I pulled that from, uh, they never found any evidence that someone had tampered with the votes, but they did discover that the vulnerability was there, which meant that there was always the possibility someone could tamper with the votes, which is why they were decertified. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, at least according to the the officials, it doesn't look like anyone actually managed to do that or took the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's a possibility that has to be addressed, right? Um, 
And that kind of brings us up to the 2016 hacking threat. So I don't know if you guys have been paying attention. Uh, here in the United States, earlier in 2016, hackers gained access to the Democratic National Convention databases, and they stole a whole bunch of emails and files, more than 20,000 of them. And uh, a lot of them were released by WikiLeaks. Around 20,000 were released by WikiLeaks, but that uh-huh. doesn't mean that that's all of them. And there were a lot of questions like, who the heck hacked into the DNC? Yeah. And we were pointing at a specific country. Mm-hmm. And that country is? Russia. Thank you. But, but it's, I wanted it, you to say it, not me. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so here's, here's one of the things that yeah. makes this an interesting story. And in, to some degree, the reports of it remind me a little bit of the famous Sony hack. Oh, yeah. Was, 2014. Yeah. Right. Where they talk about North, North Korea, Korea and, being the culprit. Mm-hmm, yeah. And you and I, uh, explored that together as well. So one of the big questions is, to what end, to what, what value would Russia's state-sponsored, uh, hacking branch, which does exist, what, what value would it see in interfering on such a minimal level at this point? Is this a buy-in for blackmail further mm-hmm. down the line? Mm-hmm. Is this to discredit something? Uh, because the, the DNC, is a domestic facing organization. Right. So it's a lot, it, it's much more, um, it's an entirely different animal in comparison to something like a State Department server. Sure. Which would have or, stuff about or, Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Any of those uh, things like the CIA or, uh, you know, that would be another, or NSA. Right. Like the, the targets that you would think of if you wanted to g- gather a lot of intelligence. Yeah. And so. The issue here initially, I, I don't know about you, but initially I was skeptical because I thought, ah, oh, this, all this bear poking that's going on now is not gonna, is not nice gonna for pay Russia, off. The yeah. Russian bear poking. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna pay off because there is a reason that the Putin uh, government has been in power for as long as it has. <laughs> and it's, it's because, you know, this, this government has seen American presidents come and go and they have a maybe a longer horizon politically sure. when they contemplate these things. So I, I, it's strange to see what appears to be harmless rhetoric trotted out against them. However, I had to rethink my skepticism on this when more than one security firm came out saying evidence indicates it's probably these guys. Yeah, as it turns out, um, a security firm immediately – Pretty much uh, shortly after the the leak was was made public, said that the signs were pointing toward a Russian actor. Um, that the methodologies and software used were the same that had been employed by Russian state-sponsored hacking groups in the past. And uh, there were some folks who said, uh, "I don't, I'm, you know, I don't think so." In fact, one um, Jucifer 2.0 hacker came out and said. No, no, no. It was me. I'm a lone wolf. I did it. It wasn't, uh, I was the one who, who stole all that and gave it over to, uh, WikiLeaks. <laughs> and, uh, although they also claimed that, uh, he was Romanian or he or she, the hacker claimed that, uh, he or she was Romanian. But then when people were trying to communicate with him or her in Romanian, uh, 
the responses did not seem particularly coherent. Right. Which seems to give the lie that they are, in fact, Romanian. Yeah. Um, but uh, other security firms ended up corroborating the findings of the first one. They said, yeah, the the exploits that were used, the malware that was used is identical to the type of malware that has been used by this Russian hacking group. It is exactly the M.O. that we've mm-hmm. seen in other cases, including a case that involved the German uh, parliament in 2015. Yeah. So uh, either it's, again, another Russian hacking group or it's someone who learned everything they know from a Russian hacking group because it was identical in, in nature. Yes. Um, so why would Russia want to interfere, interfere with the DNC? And uh, I think the most succinct way of putting that is that Putin doesn't like Clinton. Huh. <laughs> kind of is what it boils down to is that Putin uh, and would not want Clinton in the White House well, as president. Yeah, also as an active Secretary of State at times when uh, NATO and NATO and Russia, as well as its allies, were engaged in uh, geopolitical tensions that sparked into. Right now, there's an ongoing proxy war mm-hmm. in Syria. And yes, it, and it's between Russia. Between the U.S., no, of course, it's not being reported that way or marketed that way, but unless you're reading any uh, media outside of the U.S. or Russia, right, right. in which case everyone says Russia who backs the Syrian government and the U.S. that backs the rebels, right? Like, uh, and that goes across political spectrum. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. So, you know, very, very um, historically conservative papers of note in. England, like uh, like the magazine The Economist or the much more liberal uh, paper The Independent, mm-hmm. will both pretty much say what it is. Right. It's just we don't talk about it here on CNN. Uh, there is there is an antagonistic thing. So I would say there's probably resentment um, or concern about having a commander in chief uh, who knows all the State Department's skeletons, yeah, uh, including the Russian ones, and then additionally. There always has to be a question when there's this level of nepotism in American politics where the – because we had the son of a former president become president somehow in a meritocracy and then – Multiple times actually. Right, right. Multiple times and then having the um, the spouse of a former president be in the running for president. What's it, really crazy is if yeah. you ever see a family tree of all the presidents and see how much oh, cross yeah. there is. Except for that one. There's like one guy. Yeah, but everyone is pretty much everyone else's cousin at, at most. And there's an interesting mathematical aspect to that because if you go f- for far enough out or the further you go, the more re- people you're related to. Right? Sure, yeah. Like I, I've probably – you're probably 16th cousins with someone that – would completely it would completely baffle you. Yeah, yeah. And so that I mean that's true, but I I could see that it I could see the Russian government having that kind of concern, but also funding wise, uh, funding wise and infrastructure wise, they're pretty strapped for cash right now, uh, and strapped for manpower as well. Mm. So. It's a question of how well equipped they are as well as how motivated they are. Right. And and let's also point out that hacking the DNC is different than hacking an election because like I said earlier, with the electronic voting machines, you have all these different targets with all these different softwares, whereas hacking the DNC ma- means focusing on a single target, not looking at a bunch of 
different targets across the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. So that requires less of an investment. I mean, it still, you know, obviously requires a great deal deal of uh, work in order to uh, find to create a, a vulnerability or to exploit a vulnerability. Yeah, but. It's different than having to target a whole bunch of different machines. But it has raised the question. A lot of people have asked, well, if they hack the DNC, could Russia also interfere with the actual election of 2016? Uh, and, yeah. and Wired's Brian Barrett, who wrote one of the articles I read for this uh, episode, specifically says he does not think so. Uh, mostly because if, in fact, Russia wanted to interfere with the election, it would not have also targeted the DNC database and hacked uh, into it because once everyone finds out about that, then you are on high alert for the election. Uh, And so if you wanted to hack the election, you would not want people to know that you were capable of doing something on that scale before you did it. Right, right? yeah. You don't want to... You don't don't monologue in front of James Bond before you push the button. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And... Uh, it's not their first time at the geopolitical rodeo. So no, they've I, done this. A, yeah, they're they're old hands at uh, and as as is the United States. I'm not giving let's the U.S. Be a pass. Completely honest. Yeah, yeah, we've got any major player in geopolitics. There's some dark stuff going on. Switching regimes, the way that people named Chad change cargo pants. Right. Uh, so. Probably, again, no offense to chats. Probably Russia's not going to be uh, involved. And plus, it, again, it would it would require a much broader attack uh, right. that re- would require multiple strategies in order for you to play it out. So, but the fact that it, it the possibility has been raised again creates uncertainty among the U.S. public, and that alone is enough to cause uh, a lack of confidence in results. Right? We've already seen. I mean, uh, Trump has even said, like, I expect there's going to be a lot of tampering involved in this uh, in this election, already bringing into question the results which haven't happened yet. Right. It's like he's it's like he's already said we can't trust what the results will say. And we haven't even gone into the voting booths. We're just about to wrap up this discussion about electronic voting machines. But before we get to that, let's take another quick break. So what do we think? How do we wrap this all up? Well, first we should remember that uh, while in Georgia, it's hard, it's easy for us to forget. We're in the minority. Not everyone is using an electronic voting machine mm-hmm. to cast their vote. In mm-hmm. fact, according to uh, um, Pamela Smith of Verified Voting, about 75% of the nation will vote on some form of paper ballot in the 2016 election. Only only 25% of us using other methods. So there's not some maniacal corporate supervillain who's out to rig the election across the nation for the Clinton campaign, the Trump campaign, or Gary Busey. Right, right. Gary Busey can try and infect as many computers as he wants, but as it turns out, unless he's figured out a way to replace all the choices on a paper ballot with Gary Busey, which would be amazing. I kind of want to see an official ballot that just has Gary Busey as all the different options. Like including including the resolutions that are the tax you know, resolutions. Yeah, exactly. And stuff. <laughs> um, unless he's able to do that, then it's not going to have that big of a scale of impact. Uh, so so this is also some of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? Like right. 
on the one hand, yes, these systems are not as secure as they should be. They aren't encrypting data, which they should be, or at least not all of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, Not all of them have paper trails. Even the ones that do have paper trails may not, the state may not require a post-election audit, which they absolutely should. Also, the paper trails may not be voter verifiable, which they absolutely should be, so that we can be, so that we can have confidence that the results announced are in fact reflective of the actual choices that people made. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in favor of your candidate or against your candidate, you want to know that the results that happened were real and not reflective of someone else's Machiavellian plan (laughs) to put put a specific person in power or specific group in power or specific set of laws into play. You want to feel like the process works. And in order to do that, you need this verifiable voter trail. You need Mm -hmm. to have these post-election audits Mm -hmm. and not everywhere has that ability or option. So now that's one thing. Um, Another thing to remember is that uh, it's hard to get these systems up to date and at that level where we could be confident in their results because, again, it costs money and it's politically difficult to convince groups to spend that money specifically to upgrade uh, election equipment. Keeping in mind that this is stuff that's used only a couple of times a year at most, right? Like you might have to – if you are very active in your local community, you may be voting maybe a couple times per year depending upon – how uh, things are run in your area. Uh, some people only come out to vote for the presidential elections. They don't vote for any of the other ones. And so it's hard to justify, like, you're going to spend X million dollars this year for equipment that you're going to be able to use maybe in two elections before you need to, like two general elections before mm-hmm. you need to upgrade the equipment again. And there's that great argument about open sourcing Yes. The software. Exactly. So, I mean, I think uh, I would love to see more uh, transparency, both on that open source approach so people can make sure there's no inherent bias in the code. Uh-huh. Again, conscious or not, because there there are times where people can insert a bias without even thinking they are, right? Like that, that just happens because we're human. You don't have to be making a conscious decision to be a jerk. To create bias. Yeah, and there's also there's also a perception problem that comes out post event, which is, you know, humans are intensely tribalistic. Yeah. It's we're not particularly fact based creatures, unfortunately. No. And because we were we evolved to live off of perceptions. So what what inevitably happens is no matter what side of the political aisle you find yourself kicking it on, uh the people who feel that their candidate has won or when a candidate wins, the supporters will say, uh, the system works. Right. These people who object to my candidate are just total. This is sour grapes. Yeah, just sour grapes. These nincompoops, they don't understand. And of course, I would be, uh, I would be a, a dignified, uh, a dignified dissenting voice. If I, you know, if I, I didn't pick the obviously the best candidate, right. which if, I did. if the other candidate had won, which they didn't, but if they yeah. had, then I would have been a gracious loser. However, in the alternative, in the alternative universe, yes. Schrodinger's cat this for a second. Uh, what what would happen if the same people lost? They would say, well, 
This is all rigged. Yeah, the system's rigged. The system's rigged. It was rigged from the beginning. It was rigged because of the media. The media reported things in such a way as Mm -hmm. to uh, minimize the the opponent's flaws and maximize my candidate's flaws, which didn't even really exist. They manufactured flaws and then they maximized them. Yeah. And et cetera, et cetera. Right. And uh, this this is like a natural sort of thing that happens. We're not trying to vilify anyone in particular. Or any political party. To be honest, we've already seen it here in the U.S. this year just through the primaries. When oh, the primaries yeah. happened. You saw uh, people who were like progressives who were supporting Bernie Sanders uh, – refusing to believe that Clinton had won the primary. Um, now, there's another uh, there's another Wally O'Dell situation there, however. Yes, uh, where you had the the chairwoman of the uh, the Democratic convention who uh, in some of those leaked messages that WikiLeaks re- uh, released, mm-hmm. uh, it was clear that she was favoring she she personally favored Clinton over Sanders yeah. whether that actually ever had any effect beyond her personal beliefs uh is less clear in fact the evidence doesn't really support that there right. was like a a a concentrated effort to diminish Sanders to a point where he would be he would not be allowed to be a candidate uh, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that there wasn't like a smoking gun from that WikiLeaks release. Yeah, yeah but again, just like a PR uh, company would say, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the head of that, who was the head of the convention at the time, did write and vociferously supported uh, the Clinton campaign. So whether or not there was any um, shenaniganry, yeah. I I just barely stumbled through that word. Uh, whether or not there was. Uh, the fact of the matter is that it it, it increases uh, distrust and fear and uncertainty, as right. you said earlier. Right. So you get this lack of confidence in the system. Uh, and obviously that's not the direction we want to move in. We want to move in a, a direction where everyone is at least confident that their voice is being heard. Yeah. It may turn out that their voice does isn't powerful enough to make the change they want, which is – Frustrating, obviously, but less so than feeling like you are being ignored or purposefully uh, silenced. Yeah. Right. You don't want that at all. But so is direct democracy really an answer? Because if we define direct democracy as well, let's take, for example, one of the best arguments against direct democracy. All right. 4chan. Okay, that's fair. Anyone with an inter- anyone with an internet connection can go on there and mm-hmm. say whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to see the priorities of a mass of people uh, without some kind of structure to their interaction. Well, uh, I I'm really in favor of um, approaching this from a plurality standpoint, where at least in in most areas of government, where you make sure. That the representatives of government reflect the levels of support in the general population. So yeah. instead, instead of it being like every single position is determined by uh, a majority, if you have a plurality, then you say, all right, well, X percentage of uh, mm-hmm. Congress must be made up of this party because that reflects the 
to uh, American the voters. American voters. Uh, and then this uh, Y percentage must be of this other party because that represents. And then the, these independents also won this amount, so they should take up these seats. But that would be a totally different approach to government than the way the United States is structured. Yeah, and it could get complicated. Yeah, who, go, who from where from what? <laughs> yeah, but this is already complicated. Can I uh, could I plug some stuff real quick? Absolutely. All right, so. First off, thank you so much for having me on. And ladies and gentlemen uh, of the jury, I almost said, of the podcast jury, uh, thank you so uh, thank you so much for uh, checking out this episode. If you are interested in this in this process, um, Jonathan and I have looked at uh, some other some other tech related conspiracy theories, including that Sony hack uh, and. We've been on several episodes together, so you can find all of those in either one of our various internet uh, pre- presences. <laughs> yeah, either our videos or our podcasts sure. or, uh, you know, sometimes the mad scribblings on a blog somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, the whispers of uh, the whispers of a, a, uh, a person passing you by on a moonless night at the crossroads. But occasionally you'll just be in the woods and you'll hear the sound of a baby laughing. And if you listen very carefully, uh, just before the Blair Witch gets you, you'll hear, at any rate, <laughs> right. it's me. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's how we met. Uh, so... There's another, there are another couple things that I think would be worth your time to check out if you're interested in this subject as specifically applied to, uh, the U.S. voting system and 2016. Stuff they want you to know has a couple of videos about this. We have one about the Federal Election Commission, one that's a grab bag of political conspiracies for 2016, and then one thing called five things you should know about primary elections. So do check those out. They are free on the internet. Well, I mean, they're free, you know, assuming that you have an internet connection. Right. Yeah, the content is free. The manner of transmission may be mm-hmm. uh, somewhat uh, less so, depending on whether or not you're at the local library. And I wonder, this is maybe a forward-thinking question okay. uh, that you know Jonathan has another show called Forward Thinking. I did the future of voting, so go ahead and hit me. Yeah, it's a future. Uh, it's a future-facing show about the evolution of tech. Did you did you touch on anything about? Uh, Machine consciousness or artificial intelligence and voting? Uh, a couple times, actually. We did an episode specifically about what it would be like to have a robot as president. Would you ever want a future where a robot could be president? Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea being that if you had a truly impartial, artificially intelligent creature that would be able to make choices that are the, of the greatest benefit and the least detriment to the population, yeah. would you want to do that? Or do you think humanity is absolutely essential in order for you to have a leader? We did an episode about that. We also did an episode about the future of voting and some of the pitfalls, including things like machine intelligence mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the future. That one was not too long ago. That, that published probably was about a month or two ago, maybe. Uh, so, yeah, we've got some stuff that we've talked about. I personally think that there are a lot of problems we need to solve in the immediate future that uh, some of which would would avoid the machine learning artificial intelligence question for quite some time because um, like there there have been people who have asked, well, what about the possibility of voting via the internet? Mm-hmm. The idea being that if you could vote via in an internet, you could drive up voter participation dramatically. You've re- you the more you reduce the investment required to participate, the more people will 
participate. That's the idea, right? So yeah. if you make it less of a chore to vote, more people will vote because that that's one of those ongoing narratives in the United States, right? That such right. a small, relatively small percentage of our population actually participates in the process. Uh, particularly if it's not a presidential election. Right. Then those numbers plummet. I think, though, I think that people should – I know this is controversial, but I think people should be required to vote. I think it should be part of the stuff you have to do. And there's not – To be a citizen. Yeah, there's not very much stuff you have to do uh, if you were born here to be uh, a citizen or serve your There's actually way more stuff that you aren't supposed to do in order to be a citizen. There's a much bigger list of do nots. Yeah. Uh, But I I think uh, it's – while it's controversial, it's a good system to consider because then we will see – all of the people who, for one reason or another, were not able to get time off to vote, yeah. uh, were not able to get which transit. Is, uh, which is, by the way, illegal. You are supposed to be – your employer is supposed to allow you the it's time a, to vote. That's It's illegal pra- in theory. It's illegal in theory. In practice, it is much different, right? Yeah. I mean, again, just like we were talking about with the electronic voting machines, ideally it works one way. In reality, it may work a totally different way. Uh, there are countries that have compulsory voting because often when you see the United States, the voting numbers, the percentage of people participating, mm-hmm. it'll be compared against other nations and say, look how terrible the U.S. turnout is compared to these countries. And then you start looking like, yeah, but four of those countries you listed require everyone to vote. Right. So therefore, first of all, the, none of them are at 100 percent. So someone's slacking. <laughs> and secondly, that's not fair to to hold up a country that doesn't have compulsory voting against one that do um, I I don't know that I would ever go with compulsory I kind of I kind of feel you I mean I kind of I want I want to see more people involved in it whether it's but I, I also don't know the reasons behind people not voting right right, right. if they're not voting because there is an uh, a, a hardship on them in order to participate in the system it's not like I can blame them, right? Mm-hmm. If there is some form of hardship, whether it's economic or it's just you know practical, like how do I get to the voting sure, station, yeah. whatever it may be, I have a lot of sympathy for those people. And I even have sympathy for people who have lost confidence mm-hmm. in the system. And the reason they don't vote is because they feel like their vote doesn't really have uh, an impact. And I, I can certainly see, especially based upon the rhetoric that you tend to be subjected to in the election seasons, how you can get disillusioned and sad. (laughs) And therefore you're like, I kind of just want to disappear until this is over. Um, Although this, every time there's an election, it's really important. Um, Very, very important, including at the local level, maybe especially at the local level. Um, Here in the U S we give a lot of attention to the presidential elections. Truth be known, your local elections are going to have a much larger impact on your day-to-day life than your uh, national ones. Yeah. Um, but obviously that's not the big story. You're looking at who, who's, who's sitting on the, uh, on the throne. I'm sorry, in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm a royalist, so I have a little bit of a different view on things. Um, I'm not really a royalist. <laughs> so, we'll, see. Th- well, that that was a great discussion about it. Obviously, we got a little ph- philosophical, and um, you know, I I don't want anyone to base their political opinion on anything I say. I think it's very important for you to form your own, even if I fully disagree with it. I respect the fact that you guys have a political opinion. 
So I'm not trying to sway anyone to my side. Um, Which is good because your side is crazy. My side votes Reagan uh, in this election. <laughs> Even in 2016. Well, yeah, he's, he's, he's passed on and yet I write it in. Uh, also, by the way, you may not be able to write in a, a president presidential candidate. Not all states allow it. Oh, yeah, that's a bummer. I think it's like 47 states allow it. So there's like three mm-hmm. that do not, something like that. You know what probably happened? Somebody was screwing around too much with what they thought was a great mm-hmm. bit. And they were like, guys, we cannot make uh, we, we cannot make the Pink Panther the state senator. Or, or Bill the Cat. Or Bill the Cat. Oh, I Bloom, love Bloom County has run the presidential candidacy quite a few times. Right, yeah. So uh, – Maybe it's just a joke gone wrong, but if you're in one of the uh, vast majority of states and you want to write a vote in, then that's go your, ahead and do it. That's your civic, civic uh, right as a citizen of the United States. And some would argue your moral responsibility. <laughs> Depends on your on your uh, perspective on the candidates, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, there we go. See, at any rate, that's how you know it's me when you hear that voice in the woods. Uh, thank you again, Ben, for being on the show. And that wraps up this pair of classic episodes. Thank you so much for listening. I think these are very important things for us to be aware of, things that we need to pay very close attention to. We can't just take for granted that the systems that we have in place to allow us to uh, to participate in the democratic process just work or that they just don't work. We need to really examine them, ask questions, make ourselves accountable, and make certain that we still have a system that people can believe in. Uh, It's hard enough out there right now to find representatives sometimes that actually reflect our own values. That can be a real challenge. We don't need to make it even harder by making the process one that we feel we cannot rely upon. We need that process to be rock solid. I hope you guys enjoyed these classic episodes. We'll be back with a new episode in Wednesday's show, so stick around for that. And uh, yeah, I apologize for running reruns in a way, but at the same time, I just felt like this is something that we need to think about, especially in advance of another election year here in the United States. We really need to pay attention to this stuff and be active participants if we want to make any real substantive change. All right, guys, if you want to reach out to me, you can do so on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 